as I alluded to before, it's going to be it's going to create conflict between states and federal. More importantly, I think it's going to create conflicts between states. Um, I think that there's going to be plenty of states in which information will be collected because the use of that information within the state would be deemed to be okay. Where I think people are going to get concerned is when that information transitions out of the state or into an environment such that it's no longer protected. So Ellen and I have discussed the case where a hypothetical where somebody who is seeking an abortion in, in Tennessee goes up to New York to go get the abortion. And let's say that that information gets documented in an electronic medical record. And then that information becomes discoverable back at their home institution back in Tennessee. And so you pull that information back into Tennessee. Now imagine that that individual now has a complication from the abortion after they come home and they're seeking additional care at this point. And I could, I could certainly envision a situation in which somebody pulls this information back and then uses it as justification for why that woman should not be treated or should be treated a certain way because it's an artifact of the abortion that she received in a different state. And so this is, this is a situation in which, you know, the generation of that information in a state in which abortion was legal seemed totally innocuous until the individual crossed state lines. Now, will this happen? I don't know. It's a hypothetical. How likely is it to happen? I can envision it happening. Um, but, but you know, is it a question of don't collect the information? I think for the time being, I think if you fail to collect information that's going to be useful for healthcare in general, we'd be cutting off our noses despite our face even further at this point. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Realm, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter, at www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web. This episode is, in a word, special. We have the absolutely best possible guests to discuss a very timely topic. Professor Bradley Malin is the Accenture Professor of Biomedical Informatics, Biostatistics, and Computer Science, as well as Vice Chair for Research Affairs in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He is arguably the world expert on data privacy, having invented or helped to debunk myths around the most common approaches used to protect our electronic medical records from either misuse or to facilitate safe data sharing. He is an elected fellow of the National Academy of Medicine, the American College of Medical Informatics, the International Academy of Health Sciences Informatics, and the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering. In addition, he was honored as a recipient of the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from the White House. Brad is joined by Dr. Ellen Wright Clayton, JD, MD. Ellen is an internationally respected leader in the field of law and genomics who holds appointments in pediatrics and health policy at the Medical School at Vanderbilt and in the Law School at Vanderbilt, as well as in the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University. Ellen has helped to develop policy statements for numerous national and international organizations, the Public Population Project in Genomics, Human Genome Organization, Council of International Organizations of Medical Sciences, American Society of Human Genetics, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's busy. Ellen has worked on a number of projects for the National Academy of Medicine and is currently a member of its National Advisory Council, as well as director of its Board on Population Health and Public Health Practice and the Report Review Committee. For her service, she received the David P. Rawl Medal from the National Academy of Medicine in 2013. In addition to these amazing guests, we're excited to have S.T. Bland, a leader that we all know at the Vanderbilt Center for Precision Medicine, as well as Jane Bach, a fantastic songwriter we know, who has an extremely successful career as a performing songwriter in Nashville. Jane is joined again by Jeannie McQuinn, a partner in crime with Jane in songwriting, and also the owner of GreatBigRiverMusic.com. I want to thank all of them for a really important conversation. 
In a word today, we discuss Roe. Specifically, we discuss what it means to have had decades of settled law overturned in terms of people, in terms of processes, and in terms of data. Also in terms of future policy implications. We cover it all. I don't think we could have covered it better. And I wanna stop talking because although you've heard a snippet at the very beginning, you should know this was one of four possible snippets I could have let you hear. It's simply that good. So without further ado, let's start listening. So uh, why don't we get started? So first of all, welcome everybody to Informatics in the Round. Let me let Jane and Jeannie introduce themselves and then Ellen, you can introduce yourself. My name is Jane Bach and this is Jeannie McQuinn. I am a songwriter, that's what I do. I'm a songwriter and a producer and um, that's basically my life right now. And, you, and you're a teacher. And I am a teacher, I am a teacher. Uh, I teach a workshop, it's an eight week course in songwriting and the music business. Nice. So, yeah, and, and where uh, do you teach that? Well, I teach it wherever people want to take it. I taught a master class of sorts at Vanderbilt a couple of years ago. Actually, it was more than a couple of years ago. <laughs> Over at, and um, I've I've taught in New York and in L.A. and in Austin, and it's a series of workshops. And you know, not that I know everything, but I've sure been pushed through the ropes a number of times. So. Yeah. You know, helping uh, helping these younger singer songwriters out is wonderful. I really love doing it. And and Jeannie, how about you? Um, most all of the above. I am a songwriter, music publisher, producing demos, um, and I uh, teach piano. I have piano students. So Ellen. Um, I'm Ellen Clayton. I've been at Vanderbilt for 34 years, and I am a general pediatrician law professor and in the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society. And I have to say that I wrote my first article about genetic testing and prenatal diagnosis um, when I was in law school, which appeared in 1978. So this is uh, something that I've been interested in for a long time and can hardly believe where we are now. Wow. In a negative way. In a negative way. You're a woman ahead of your time. Uh, you know, it never occurred to me when I was in the 20s, that, or my 20s, that we were going to be where we are now. It just Who never occurred to me. Who could have known? Uh. Yeah. Brad, who are you? Uh, I'm Brad Mellon. Come on. <laughs> uh, my, my day job is I'm a professor of biomedical informatics, biostatistics, and computer science at, at Vanderbilt. Um, I used to be Kevin's vice chair for research affairs before he left Vanderbilt, and uh, I know flew away. And, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> and I work with Ellen. <laughs> it has now become a daily basis because we uh, we run several research projects together for the NIH. Um, and I'll I'll say that by the way, you guys, Ellen and Brad are very woefully understating. Yes. Their international stardom in the spaces of privacy and uh, some security, but basically certainly privacy of, of in the ways that you typically think about it. They've been involved with every major project, and I can't even imagine how many places ask you to consult at these point, this point. Too many. Yeah. <laughs> yep. too, too many, as you can imagine. Yep. And then I can, and Ellen, I could talk about forever. Ellen's in the National Academy of Medicine. Ellen has written, I mean, her most recent major work was a, a huge piece on human trafficking that got an enormous amount of, of press and continues because that problem hasn't gone away. Like a lot of problems, they just seem to get worse no matter how much we talk about them. Right. So, and um, I will just help Jane and Jeannie by saying, Jane Bach is one of Nashville's, one of Nashville's most famous songwriters. It's true. Stop it. Look at the back of your wall. Look at the back of your wall. I, I'm, I'm noticing that. No, I, well, wherever I sit, there's going to be something there. And this seems because there's windows over there. So this way, with the glare and everything, I, just the way it's positioned. And like I say, truthfully, it's just stuff up on walls. It really is. But for me, it's my life. 
everything tells a story. I remember where I was when I wrote every song on every one of these albums, and and uh, some of these albums I produced, and so I, you know, that experience for me. Yeah, Just yeah. And then Jeannie McQuinn, who's back there, is a new friend who is also a songwriter. And in our last podcast, Jeannie and Jane talked about uh, a lullaby project that we're doing together. Jeannie's also a producer. Uh, and I'm sure if we can get Jane to sing something today, they'll sing something together. Oh, stop acting like you're not, you didn't know. No, I really didn't. I really didn't. But we'll talk. And if I feel comfortable doing something, I'll be more than happy to. The only person who hasn't introduced herself is Sarah. Who are you? Sarah Bland, uh, Senior Project Manager at Vanderbilt. So I have to tell you guys the backstory here. So in our last podcast, we were discussing portals, another topic that about which Ellen and Brad are very familiar. And about halfway through, uh, we, were, we were talking with a wonderful new junior faculty member at Johns Hopkins who's doing work looking at whether patients who have HIV might be willing to use their portal to self-disclose to partners. And we were all like, can't believe people would do this. And he said, he used to be an EIS worker. Absolutely, people will do this. And Jane has been on a bit of a privacy kick now for I don't, as long as I've known her. In this last episode, this became a really big topic that we kept avoiding. <laughs> so I said, okay, I know how we can not avoid this, which is we have, I have the pleasure of knowing two of the world's experts in this area who are, have been incredibly gracious with their time. Ellen actually even goes back, just because only I can disclose this, to being my attorney uh, or be, being a witness. What was your role? Um, I actually was a witness and I was a consultant. Okay, witness and consultant to the trial I had with my ex-wife as we were um, getting divorced. And there was some contention around the idea that I might be allowed to be married to a man or at least have my daughter in the same house as my now husband. So she was standing at the ready, but as it turns out, the judge decided that our parenting plan was sufficient for him to say that we are not in violation of the parenting plan. Although he waited nine months after hearing about the case and kept a restraining order on my husband for the entire nine months where he was not allowed to come in the house at any time that our daughter was here. Wow. So it was quite the, quite the case. Can't even. Boy, we all have nightmare, not all we don't, but nightmare divorce stories. They're just awful. Yeah. So as bad as that is, here we are today, right? So Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization has really done something we never thought would happen, which has challenged the idea of settled law and has had these ripples through really every community that any of us are a part of. And I think you know, better, better, better for me to not say much than for me to just quickly introduce this topic and let us just discuss it openly. One of the nice things about this format is we have people who really think about these issues outside of healthcare, and we can talk with them in an honest, open, clear format. We also have the ability to edit out things and change it if we have to. I think this will be useful. Um, but just to sort of set the stage, so it was, it was always the case that there were states that were standing at the ready to criminalize abortion in whatever form they wanted to define it. What's happened over the last year is that some of those states have also added laws that criminalize both the now the patient, not really yet, but about to be, criminalize the person who has terminated the pregnancy, has also cr potentially criminalized people who are aiding and abetting in the process of helping a woman find a person who can terminate their pregnancy. And in the process of that, scared everyone to death about the breadcrumbs, the data breadcrumbs that we leave behind that could actually point to the intent to terminate a pregnancy, whether that turns out to be true or not. Um, Ellen, Brad, did I get that basically right? I, yes, you did get it basically right. And I think that there are a couple ways to start with this. One of them was that the court really decided that if it wasn't enunciated in 1868 um, in the Constitution, that there was no um, protection of individual privacy. And so, so therefore, they struck down abortion on their, on their view that that was not something that was uh, protected at the time. And so, therefore, it shouldn't be protected now. And in fact, 
that we ought to leave um, regulation of this to the states. Now, what we've seen are uh, states doing a variety of things. One of them is just saying that any clinician who helps a woman get an abortion starting at a particular time at the moment here in Tennessee, it's six weeks, but in less time, it's gonna be at all ever, um, that they can, be, um, they can be convicted of a crime. That's a very big deal. Um, some states are beginning to talk about whether people who aid or abet a woman, whether that means driving them to another state, giving them information, anything like that, can also be convicted of a crime. In addition, so far, the states have not imposed criminal penalties on the woman herself, but there are clearly states at, at the moment that are considering doing that, which would certainly be a very big deal. And then uh, to go beyond that, Texas and other states and other states are already following, have said that private citizens can be vigilantes. And if they think that someone's had an abortion or that someone has helped in an abortion, that they can bring a private right of action and get attorney's fees uh, plus, um, plus a $10,000 civil penalty. The idea of that is to make sure that the courts cannot get involved and say that there's anything going on. And then to go a little bit beyond that, the collateral damage here is enormous because it, it not only reaches abortion, it's really clear that it means that women are getting inadequate um, care after they have a miscarriage uh, because it's often the case that they may need to have a surgical procedure if they don't expel the fetus on their own, and that women are already becoming incredibly sick when that isn't available to them. And then the other thing that I think is clearly on the table is that, um, that using assisted reproductive technologies like artificial, uh, like um, IVF, are going to be called into question. It's already functionally illegal in Louisiana, as it has been for a while. But the whole purpose, and I'm, I'm not even going into all the things that don't have to do with abortion and actually the care of the pregnant woman. Um, but the point about this is that everything about being pregnant then becomes subject to scrutiny, becomes subject to intervention against perhaps the woman herself. We have a long history of that, by the way. But in addition, against clinicians, against nurses, against everybody who's involved in the care of pregnant women, and anybody who just wants to help a friend. Leave, you know, leave a state like ours and go somewhere else where they can get a safe and effective uh, procedure. I mean, this is state intervention at a level that we, that we really have not seen in a very long time. And they really open the door wide. So, um, so that, I mean, that's how I would summarize where we are currently. And uh, I, think our, I think our legislature is ready to do something even more invasive than it's already done. Um, but I'm gonna give Brad a chance to talk. And before, before, the mic. before Brad jumps in, I just wanna, as a segue to Brad jumping in, when we first heard about this at the University of Pennsylvania, I actually had a couple of students who came by and said, this is a great opportunity for us to develop an app where we can help people to find the nearest, you know, actively find the nearest location for any sort of medical abortion procedure, something possibly that we need to explain. And I had to say, I'm not so sure you want to go there right now because I'm just not completely sure I know what happens to you if your app is successful. So Brad, was I way off? No, so I, I think there's a couple of additional points that are worth enumerating in addition to what Ellen pointed out. So first, the Supreme Court case is, the Dobbs case is much more significant than just an issue of um, uh, maternal rights in, or, or fertility rights in, in this situation. It actually has major implications for the foundation of privacy as it's defined in the country. Um, the what, what was really notable about Alito's majority opinion was that it talked about the perspective of privacy from 
two vantage points. And he says that one, that privacy is defined as your ability to control information about yourself. And then, and, and that is protected. But then there's this, this other notion, which is the ability to do something that may be viewed as contra to what society deems to be acceptable. And this was where things really started to become really interesting because um, in the event that he says that the states deem that certain actions are gonna be considered immoral or outside the scope of what is considered acceptable in society, that the state can deem that as being something that they can stop you from doing, even if it's to yourself. Which, which really opens up the door for a lot of potentially additional controls uh, that, that states could apply if they so choose, which is a very scary precedent when, you're, when you really think about it. The, the second issue is that I, I think, I'm pretty sure that this decision creates a potential contradiction and creates an opportunity for a dogfight between the federal government and the states, which I believe you're already starting to see in that the Office for Civil Rights at the US Department of Health and Human Services has issued several guidances over the last couple of weeks talking about how they reaffirm um, uh, fertility rights uh, as well as how they came out with one two days ago that said that they are going to be strengthening their anti-discrimination law uh, and anti-discrimination protections, which will explicitly state that you cannot discriminate against an individual with respect to their um, desire to have an abortion. The reason why that's really notable is that um, there's a lot of confusion now with healthcare systems about what is the definition of healthcare. So if abortion as a practice is deemed to be something that is not healthcare, it would not be protected under uh, HIPAA or related laws. Oh, wow. And so therefore, wow. and so therefore it, this turns into a situation where an individual could be having a conversation with their physician. If it gets documented and somebody else within the organization sees that as being documented within the medical record, they could say, well, that's an illegal circumstance. And even though you were having a conversation under the context of patient-doctor confidentiality, that might be reportable to the state at that point. And so this is where you see this notion of, well, HIPAA says, we're gonna give you protection. The Office for Civil Rights says, we're gonna give you protection. But now the states are saying, well, protection ends when this is defined as healthcare. And if an abortion is not healthcare, sorry, that, that relationship goes out the window because it could be considered tantamount to the, uh, the need to report uh, the battering of women or a spouse and, or, or child abuse. And so it, it, it's going to, create that type of a connotation for criminalization. So that that to me is those two things are are really on my mind in terms of where things are heading. Now there's other aspects that I'm sure we're going to get to but but that I think sets the stage. Well Jane is barely able to stay in her seat. <laughs> yeah. I'm listening it's so interesting. But my feeling about it all obviously is it's it's a nightmare. I look at all, everything that's happening as just an overwhelming nightmare, all of it. Um, I feel like this is really all about one thing. It's not about even privacy, even though it is. To me, it's it's about control. It's about a sect of the country, and I mean a very small percentage, way up there, the very wealthy, the very connected, um, controlling everybody below them so that they don't lose what it is they have. And the best way to start that is to control women. And you know, there's always been a history of men controlling women. And uh, this is, I, I, it's almost like I see in my future, everybody says, oh, it's the handmade tale. It is the handmaid's tale. I mean, that it to me, that is no joke. That's it. I see a very dystopian landscape out there. This is where I see we're heading if, heaven forbid, this tide doesn't turn. And uh, it's it has to do not only with a woman's right over her body or over her privacy, whether it's through period trackers or whatever it is, it has to do with interfering in one's sexuality, how dare they? How dare they? It just drives me crazy. So to me, it's all about control. And 
That's why when they say, first they tell you, well, if you turn in your neighbor, like the Nazis did, you turn in your neighbor, you turn in your friend, you hear a conversation, hey, it's a quick 10 grand, isn't it? You turn in your, your friend down the street. What they're doing is they're indoctrinating you. They're training you ultimately not to get involved. That's what they're going to do. They're going to train this, this poor doctor that performed the abortion on the 10-year-old child. Now they're looking into her background. What are they nuts? I mean, the woman was doing her job. It's just, it's crazy. Anyway, El that's... Ellen, go ahead. Well, I was going to give, give you a little bit more fuel for your fire, Jane, if you'd like. I mean... Does she really need more fuel? I, you don't need more, but I'm going to give you some more. Um, about 20 years ago, there was a very famous case at the uh, Medical University of South Carolina, um, which is where um, um, African-American women go there for their prenatal care because that's the only place they can go. Other places in South Carolina wouldn't take care of them. Um, the, they, the university <laughs> set up a deal with the sheriff's office that they would uh, they would test these pregnant women, and if they were um, if they were using drugs, then they would be reported to the sheriff's office, and they would be incarcerated. Um, and so, this is a very famous case called Ferguson versus MUSC, where the Supreme Court at that time ultimately held that uh, that that was inappropriate. I mean, thank God. I don't know what they would hold now, but. Um, but there's actually a long-standing history, particularly of looking of controlling my uh, women of color, of uh, particularly seeking out women of color who either didn't do what their doctors wanted, or who were taking drugs, or we know even into the 20th century out in California, uh, uh, minority women were being sterilized in prison. So you're spot on with control. It's just there is it's even, I mean, you know, we teach eugenics and things like that, uh, like like the Nazis um, in our courses. And we act like that, well, we did that for a while, but we got over it in 1945. And the answer is no, we didn't get over it in 1945. What we're gonna see now is that, that these patterns of who is gonna be affected by this are just gonna be much more prominent. It's gonna be much worse for minority women. Um, and, that, uh, and that women who are wealthy are likely gonna be able to sort of figure things out like they did before Roe. <laughs> but, um, but that's really what's, so you're spot on about control. And what's fascinating about this, at least in my view, is that we hear so much about liberty and we hear so much about freedom um, you know, our freedom to carry a gun, our freedom to do whatever. And it's like, I want my freedom, but you can't have your freedom. And so, and we're going to make sure that if, that if you do something, that you are going to bear all the consequences. And there's already all this stuff going on in Texas about how are they going to pay to care for all these babies? I mean, you know. Well, I hear someone say, Oh, well, we'll adopt babies. We'll adopt. You know what? There's over 40,000 children in foster care in this country that need loving homes. You want to adopt a child? Go. Go adopt them. But they don't, there's not, I mean, I know they're going to begin to infringe upon the ability to obtain birth control. Yeah. That's next. So you're going to have to be pregnant. You're going to have to carry the pregnancy and deal with it on your own. Because basically what they want from women is they want them barefoot and pregnant. That's really the way they want women and powerless. Well, and, Jerry Jeff uh, Walker, put your biscuits in the oven and your buns in the bed. <laughs> How about that? In the kitchen and in the bedroom and that's it. <laughs> so uh, I, I would want to chime in here and just say one, I agree that it is control. I don't necessarily think it's just to women. I think it's to minorities in general. Um, I think that, you know, Ellen brings up a good point here that the the populations that are most affected by this decision are people of color um, and minority populations who already have barriers to access right. in, in healthcare anyway. Absolutely. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and I'd like to in include, you know, LGBT community too, because they often don't seek healthcare because of many stigmas 
Um, so uh, I think that it's not just for women. I think it's a it's a control of minority populations. And like you said, a lot of it has to do with wealth and, and um, income inequality as well. I think that this is a class and race um, uh, struggle as well. Um, I'm con I'm just so one, I, you know, hearing even more from Brad about all the other privacy concerns that are coming along. I'm like, let's stop collecting all data now. Uh, <laughs> but what is the international community saying about this? You know, I, I, I keep wanting think to, crazy. to say like, uh, no, we're going in because there's so many issues here. But what's happening from the international partners that hear this? They think we're crazy. Yeah. Without a doubt, we're one of only two industrialized Western nations in which abortion is considered to be potentially outlawable. And so that we, we are looked at by our neighboring countries and our peers as being an extremely stodgy backwards country in this regard. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about doing uh, healthcare and collecting data and we, we all work with data. Um, I mean, do we stop? What do we do? I need I need the two experts, my my two friends who are experts on privacy to tell me what to do at this point, because I don't know. I, I don't think that we know the answer what exactly should be done or could be done. I think that this is a fast evolving situation. Um, it's going to continue to be this way while we see the chips start to fall into place based on this decision. Um, I you know, as what happens with almost any federal policy, once you do something, it's going to have a chain reaction for a lot of things that you cannot predict. This is true with fiscal policy changes. This is true over any type of a market management. This is no, no different here. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. What I can tell you is that it's going to create, as I alluded to before, it's going to be, it's going to create conflict between states and federal. More importantly, I think it's going to create conflicts between states. Um, I think that there's going to be plenty of states in which information will be collected because the use of that information within the state would be deemed to be okay. Where I think people are going to get concerned is when that information transitions out of the state or into an environment such that it's no longer protected. So Ellen and I have discussed the case where a hypothetical where somebody who is seeking an abortion in, in Tennessee goes up to New York to go get the abortion. And let's say that that information gets documented in an electronic medical record, and then that information becomes discoverable back at their uh -huh. home institution back in Tennessee. And so you pull that information back into Tennessee. Now imagine that that individual now has a complication from the abortion after they come home, and they're seeking additional care at this point. And I could, I could certainly envision a situation in which somebody pulls this information back and then uses it as justification for why that woman should not be treated or should be treated a certain way because it's an artifact of the abortion that she received in a different state. And so this is this is a situation in which you know the generation of that information in a state in which abortion was legal seemed totally innocuous until the individual crossed state lines. Now, will this happen? I don't know. It's a hypothetical. How likely is it to happen? I can envision it happening. Um, but but you know is it a question of don't collect the information i think for the time being i think if you fail to collect information that's going to be useful for healthcare in general we'd be cutting off our noses despite our face even further at this point now could you adopt strategies that might become more privacy respective or privacy protective yeah though i think it's going to require some work so for instance, in the healthcare space, I, I suspect that one of the things that we could do is create a segmentation strategy where you may treat maternal um, and, and, and fertility information in a completely different section of the medical records such that it doesn't get pulled back or, or may be made accessible on a broad scale like we make medical records today. Right. That could certainly be done. It could also have major negative implications with respect to the care of people because you're going to start piecing out how best do you think information should be reasoned about to provide health care and having an incomplete picture can certainly lead to suboptimal care and potentially uh, harmful events. Right. So I don't think I have an answer for you that says, what should you do? I think it's a, it's a question, it's a situation of vigilance is going to be important. 
trying to document where you think information is going to go or could go, uh, even without your knowledge, I think is going to be important. I think we lack transparency with respect to a lot of the systems that are collecting and sharing information. And I, and I don't think that patients and particularly consumers, and I make a distinction between consumers and patients for Kevin, because when he asked us to start coming together for this, this, uh, this little hootenanny, I think the, um, there was this question about what's gonna happen with applications and mobile tracking. And, and that is completely outside the scope of healthcare. That's a, that's a completely different situation because, because that turns into the relationship between a consumer and a service provider and whatever you contract with them about, they can treat that as how they can handle your information, regardless of if it had to do in relation to your health, it won't be protected under HIPAA. We can, we can spend a long time going down yeah. that rabbit hole, but just pointing this out. It's really important to think about the adverse consequences of not having clinically pertinent information available. Right. I mean, we all know about that. We knew about that, you know, during the days of early days of HIV, as if we could possibly keep that a secret. Um, and I think that, uh, I think we're going to be really transparent with people about, with, with people about, you know, who might get hold of the data and what might happen to it. Um, so that at least they're not blindsided. But I think that it, it really is a, it's a terrible dilemma to say that you can't collect clinically pertinent information because it might lead them to be put in jail. I mean, or that the doctors who take care of them put in jail. And many of the states where this is still legal are actually passing laws to protect their providers from being extradited to states like Tennessee. Um, you know, to be prosecuted here for uh, doing doing a procedure on a, a, a Tennessee citizen. So I'm sorry, Kevin, back to you. Well, there's so much to talk about here. Let me just talk about one example, J.P. Morgan Chase. So J.P. Morgan Chase says that they will be willing to pay for uh, any of the out-of-pocket expenses associated with an attempt to get an abortion. And by the way, they support remote work. What does this mean? Does this mean that J.P. Morgan Chase should tell all of the all of their employees who live in states where this legislation is either trigger laws or new legislation is being proposed that flies in the face of their values that they should exit those states? They should no longer allow remote work from those states. What does this mean to the rest of the country? I think these companies that are doing this, like for instance Tesla in in Texas, I think they are just cruising for a bruising. I think that they're going to get sued right, left, and center when, you know, women who work for them, you know, go outside the great state of Texas. I'm a native Texan, so that's... Well, let, let's clarify this, and I'm going to be very candid about this. So Vanderbilt University Medical Center has also come out and said the same thing. Yeah. Now, there is a caveat in that it says you have to, you need to travel more than 100 miles, or you need to demonstrate that you have to travel more than 100 miles in order to receive the abortion. However, you know, that's, that is an academic medical center that is within a red state that is going to be sponsoring this as well. So it, we, we could be at ground zero for uh, such a lawsuit to be brought forth. So, you know, it, I, I, again, I don't think we know how this is going to play out. What we do know is that lawsuits will be brought forward. They will yeah. always be brought forward. And if you don't have um, a judicial sector that feels that this is, you know, enough to turn away, then eventually one thing will move forward and that, that will become dangerous. It, it really does create, a, uh, it has the potential to create precedent. So I know, Jane, you're ready to say something. I just want to ask one other question of Brad and Ellen. So we've talked about HIPAA. People understand some aspects of HIPAA, but could you just say a couple of words about both to the average person, what is HIPAA, just to remind them, but also given what you've just said, what's the gap? If, if people believe that PHI is PHI, why isn't PHI PHI? Well, first of all, you should clarify what PHI is. No, I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> oh, okay, so, so, so I'll, I'll jump in. So, so PHI is, is protected health information. Um, there's a couple things to recognize here. Um, so HIPAA 
I, we might have talked about this in your previous podcast. We did. Uh, in the previous episode. Um, goes back to the 1990s, uh, 1996 to be specific, and it's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And it was designed to support the standardization of insurance billing information so that it could fly across states more easily. The Privacy Act, the Privacy Rule and the Security Rule didn't get promulgated until 2000, 2001. Uh, and and the, the notable thing about this is that HIPAA is a sectoral law. It says that information that is generated by a covered entity and has a list of covered entities that provide healthcare or healthcare related services, then if the data is generated in that manner, then it will be protected. It will be considered confidential with respect to that organization and it receives federal protection. Um, but but there are there's a big gap and the gap kind of occurred at the same time that the um, that the rise of the internet occurred in the early 2000s, where, where as you started to make it easier for information to be collected, used, and mobile apps to be created, you had this, this out of bounds situation. And so for instance, if you have a company that is providing a period tracker and they are going to um, make it easy for you to document information about your health and about your situation, that is considered, they are not considered to be a healthcare provider or a covered entity under HIPAA, and therefore it is out of bounds, which means that your only protection is whatever the Federal Trade Commission provides to you. And Federal Trade Commission will look at what the contract is that was established between you and that service provider. And if that service provider gives you that standard end user licensing agreement that just says, you know, click me and be happy, <laughs> right? <laughs> then then you, you basically will agree to whatever they say they're going to do. And more importantly, they reserve the ability to change their term their terms with only notification to you. You do not have to reconsent at that point. And so as long as they don't use deceptive practices, the Federal Trade Commission is going to say that you entered into that agreement with them. Sorry, you may have thought that that was healthcare, but it wasn't. And so therefore you've got no protections at this point. So that, that's a huge gap. So some people have been suggesting that HIPAA should be expanded so that the definition of health information is, or the definition, the definition of health information gets broader or the definition of who is a covered entity gets broader, but that, that becomes tricky and changing that law would require an act of Congress at that point, which, which good luck on that one. Um, you know, so this is why you're seeing the rise of other potential laws. So there's a recent bipartisan bicameral bill that was introduced into Congress recently that's supposed to be more general, a consumer, a more general consumer data protection act that would look very similar to what the Europeans have established and what we're starting to see established within some of the states like California and Virginia. But that that would still not be quite the same as protection of health-related data and health rights. It, it would be about the consumer's rights at that point. So there, there is a big gap between between where we're offering protection with respect to healthcare and, and what we're seeing in terms of uh, it's cowboy country, protect yourself. Well, I was always under the impression, and of course, obviously I'm, you know, my college degree doesn't get me much. But, um, but, um, but I always thought that HIPAA was specifically and only between the doctor and the insurance company, that it had something to do with the patient's information and the insurance company. That's what I always thought it was. But yeah. that the rest of it was just, you know, if someone accesses your information illegally, you know, I don't know how it works. I really don't. I mean, I had my identity stolen. I'm not going to go into that. I don't know. How into that. It was a nightmare. They got into everything. How did they do that? They told me at one of the credit unions, they said that was helping me for all of those 12 weeks to try and straighten everything out, that they probably got in through my Wi-Fi. What? How did they get in through my Wi-Fi? I don't know. But so when it comes to privacy, I don't trust anybody. And truthfully, you want to know what my medical information is, fine. 
at my age have had it. If, if you know, I mean, truthfully, I gave up worrying about a lot of things on a personal level a long time ago. But for mankind and for the American way of life and for our democracy, I care very deeply. I have grandchildren and, you know, I want them to be able to grow up in a totally different country than these people are trying to make it. So I, I, I will stand I, I, just just one thing, which is that I will I will stand on what I always say, which is that you never realize you want privacy until you don't have it. And and so this is why a lot of people view it as a foundational principle for a modern society, because it's it's something that people would easily throw away. And then the remorse will set in when the event occurs that you say, I wish I had it. And the majority of us probably do not need it. But but that does not mean that it should not be available for those who do or for those who want it. It's this is really a matter of it, in, in many respects, it is a civil liberty. It well, is something freedom. that you should have. It's a complete freedom. And that, to me, that's what privacy is. Privacy is wrapped up in choice. It's wrapped up in my ability to make decisions for me. And that, that to me, again, now we're starting with the control. You're trying to control me. <clears throat> I can't make my, you know, my decisions myself. Whatever kind of decision it is, whether it's health, whether it's who to love, whether it's where to live, whatever, it's nobody's business but mine. So I'll make two points. One is, and we need to remember that it's people like us on this call who don't have to worry very much about privacy because we live in such privileged positions. Uh -huh. um, and that people who aren't like us, who are surveilled all the time um, and who you know, get traffic stops and just harassed. Uh, you know, they're they're in a different situation. Here, Jane, I'm gonna give you a specific thing to look out for that I fear our legislature will try to do and that it's really important to try to stop. HIPAA also, in addition to everything else, has a number of exceptions. One of them is that the state can mandate that it, it gets certain information in the, in the infectious disease example uh, area, for example, we have to report something like 50 infectious diseases to the state so that they can do public health surveillance, figure out what to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things that the Office of Civil Rights has said is that, that you don't, people are not privileged to report a crime to the state that, uh, that you learn about in the health system unless the state mandates that you do so. So the exam so the counterexample is I'm a general pediatrician. I led the child abuse section for a while. We are mandated reporters of child abuse. And so when we see a case, we have to report. The state says so. If the state says that people, if they find out in the healthcare system, find out that a woman has had an abortion, that they that says that if they find that out that they have to report that that will be a disaster so if you if you see the legislature considering a law like that jump up and down and say don't do that um because uh it, i mean I, I mean i think this is going to be a tough battle in the next several years but i just but that's one thing if they propose a law like that just say no so here's the conundrum there is the side of this which is we would like to have access to these data to improve things like, you know, AI machine learning improving healthcare. We'd like to have physicians fully document things so that we can ensure safety and quality. God forbid that a completely well-meaning physician uses an unsterilized, you know, piece of equipment that results in an epidemic of um you know, infections related to pregnancy termination in states where it's legal, we might not even be able to document that or find it if, in fact, people are afraid to document that. So we have this conundrum of we need these data to, to deliver the kinds of care we'd like to deliver in this country. Oh, by the way, we need these providers to not be in prison. Therefore, we need them to, to be careful about what they document. And, of course, 
we want patients to have access to things, especially because of issues of healthcare access in this country. But oh, by the way, we might end up drying up the spigot of free and otherwise useful apps because of people's fear now that what they've put in their notice of privacy practices may be insufficient to keep them from becoming um, whistleblowers. I, I, I would, I, I'd like to caveat that for a second. So I do not believe it's true that you need this information to provide care. You need this information to assure quality of care and to refine and improve practice. But you do not need this to provide a service. It's not a requirement. There are plenty of situations in which people receive care in a manner that it, it isn't documented still, where they they I'm just I'm just pointing this out. You know, so so would you end up with a gap? Would you be saying that that this type of a um, phenomena would not be subject or available to the machine learning and artificial intelligence development communities in the future? Could it be left behind? Could it become a bit of a data winter? Yes, that could happen. Would it, would it mean that you would not provide care? I don't, I don't think so. Now, I also say this as not being a physician. So, so you know, I get to stand here and say that I, I think that you could continue to practice. But, you know, I, I do believe that um, there are going to be questions about, there are going to be questions about, is the data complete? which we already have in a lot of situations. Well, uh, I have to push back a little bit on your Brad. Um, okay. I, I Happens on a daily basis. <laughs> I know, that's why we're such a good collaborators. Um, back in the day before we had electronic medical records, I did a lot of walk-in clinic, which meant that most of the time I was seeing patients without having any earthly idea what their past medical history was. I am completely certain that it is better to have that information available. 100% certain. I'm not saying um, that that you shouldn't, that it won't be better. I'm just saying that, could you provide the service to them? Certainly. Should you have known that that patient was allergic to penicillin before you gave it to them? Absolutely. <laughs> so Brad, what you're doing is saying, as long as it's care with a small C, then it's okay. <laughs> but I'm I saying think it's better I, than but, nothing. But I think what we, I mean, what this really highlights is that that ultimately what we have to think about is how data are used. Right. And is there a way that we can talk about having data be used? Um, and this goes to the responsible research question or comment that you made, I think very early, that if you use the data in a way that's responsible and that you really are mindful about where you're going with it, what the pitfalls are, try to avoid it. Those are some of the things that, that that you have a better chance of actually delivering value at minimal cost to the people whose, in, whose information is being used. On the other hand, we're not the only ones, we're not the only ones who are deciding how data are used. And, you know, there are other people who are going to have other uses for these data that they want to get. I'm personally terrified about what, you know, what big tech is going to do and what the apps are going to do, because I don't, think that they're really looking that far ahead and they don't um, and they may have or they may be looking that far ahead, but they may have other goals that get in the way of patient protection. Um, but I think but really it all comes down to use cases and can you come up with a use case that comes up with acceptable trade offs? I think in the current environment that's going to be super tough, but I think it's what we have to think about. Hmm. Um, Jeannie, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> so Jeannie, Jeannie just basically did the mind-blown yeah. movement. <laughs> There's not enough limoncello this. in the know. world for this. My mother and my aunt had conversation 20 years ago, and they were they were all we were all raised in a very legalistic, you know, church, but. And I was sure, I don't remember how the subject came up of abortion, but I was sure they were going to be, you know, all against it and so forth, but they were not. They had horror stories of friends or, you know, neighbors, people they knew that it had the the backstreet kind of, you know, abortion. And they, you know, they, you know, they were, they were very pro-choice. I was glad to know, you know, but, uh, but I had 
two stepdaughters and a daughter, and I have two baby granddaughters, and it just terrifies me because it's a medical decision. It has nothing to do with the government. What are they in this? Why? Why are they involved? Well, uh, one I, of the things we have to do is claim liberty. We have to claim freedom. I mean, exactly. the fact that we have let uh, some of these people get that word, say that they're freedom for them and stuff like that, we have to grasp that fact and say, we are talking about liberty. We are talking about freedom. And particularly if you look at Justice Thomas's concurrence, when he said, well, let's talk about contraception. Let's talk about gay marriage. Let's talk about LGBTQ. I noticed he didn't say anything about interracial, interracial. marriage. Yes. Yeah. Was now. based on exactly the same argument. Um, but, you know, we have to say, this is a country that's built on freedom. It's built on freedom. Do we need we a new privacy freedom. amendment? Well, we tried so, to do that in Tennessee and we blew it. So, yeah, it's it's been tricky. As we do in Tennessee. Well, <laughs> I want to I caveat all this. You know, one of the reasons why the discussion around abortion has become so challenging, has always been challenging, has to do with the argument over, are you making a decision for one person or are you making a decision that influences two people? This has always been the major sticking point from a, uh, I don't, I don't want to say from a religious perspective, but that does certainly pop into play. And, and so the argument, this is, you know, on one side, what you have is just a foundational difference in that on one side, you have people say it is an individual's decision and that until you can prove or somebody says that this is that a fetus has rights, then then you say that 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 is their decision. As soon as you say there are two parties involved, then the argument is a claim that it is murder. And 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 that that is where like a lot of this argument comes down and and i don't think that you're ever going to be able to change people's perspective from a religious perspective this is always going to be as a society do we believe that an individual has the ability to control themselves i agree it's it's you know you're not going to change the minds of those who have a religious stance on this uh as a former evangelical um because they're very much this is, you know, what God said, even if educationally it's not correct. Um, the the thing that I am concerned with uh, in the privacy side of it too, uh, but as well, but it's also, do you have autonomy of your body? Are, are you allowed to make decisions for yourself? And I think that's where a lot of this comes to because, you know, uh, for me, I'm non-binary. Uh, this year in, in the pandemic, I started testosterone. I'm considering top surgery, um, you know, and so those things that I want to do, the state of Tennessee would love to not let me because they find it to be a moral issue. There's not two people involved, but for them, they think morality wise, they believe that it's wrong. Right. That I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to do that, even though you have people who get tons of cosmetic type surgeries all the time to, you know, affirm their 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 self-esteem about themselves or whatever else because it's something that's a moral issue for them they want to legislate that so i think it's the privacy but also the autonomy are you allowed to do things to your body uh that you want for yourself or not yeah it's like i said earlier for me it just boils down to that basic freedom of to to be able to decide what you're going to do with your with your life with your body we, i mean who it, it just blows my mind i get so tongue-tied about it and i very rarely get tongue-tied so true <laughs> but i get i get so mad it drives me crazy it really does it's those sorry they want to, they they claim well we want a theocracy that's basically what they want but it's not even a theocracy it's not really based on the bible it's keep the ignorant people thinking it's based on the bible but the people at the top they know damn well what it's about and it has nothing to do with the Bible. First of all, whose Bible? What Bible? Who are you to tell me what to believe? I mean, it just drives me insane. Sorry. So I want to say a couple of words here. I know we're about to close. Um, so first, I don't know whether Ellen remembers this, but about, uh, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, um, a very famous bishop 
Bishop Gene Robinson, who's one of the first out bishops who's Episcopalian, visited Nashville. And he was in Langford Auditorium to a sold-out audience talking about his most recent book. And there was a guy who stood up um, and said something to, to Bishop Robinson about the fact that, you know, what do you think about Leviticus? And what do you think about Sodom and Gomorrah? Right? And Bishop Robinson had this beautiful phrase. He said, you know, there's a big difference between the Word of God and the words of God. And if, if the Bible were written today and someone were to describe someone as crazy by saying they were out in left field, who knows a hundred years from now when there is no baseball how that's going to be interpreted. And so a, a lot of this just has to do with the fact that I think the Founding Fathers aren't here to tell us what privacy meant to them. People, I mean, we've all seen, and I can tell Ellen's going to say this, we've all seen people really being very clear about things like freedom from religion, why they came here in the first place, and what all of this implies. And many of us have seen the Mayflower Pact and understand what happened then. So it's pretty clear to people who are scholars that at least this country was founded on a very different set of principles that would have allowed the kinds of data liberation activities that we're now doing in our field to be to be viewed as valuable to a certain extent. There are many people who would be afraid of it from a privacy perspective, but they would not be going where they're going now. And therefore, because I know we're near the end, and, and I wanted to ask Jane to do me a favor that's very different than the one I normally ask, because I want to celebrate one of our founding fathers as a way to end this. So can you just go to your piano and go like this? Chunk, cha-cha-cha, chunk, chunk, chunk. Just do that. <laughs> the opening of Hamilton. <laughs> How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor Grew up to be a hero and a scholar. The $10 founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By 14, they placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day, while slaves were being slaughtered and slaughtered away across the waves, he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside, he was looking for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. Then a hurricane came and devastation reigned. Our man saw his future drip, dripping down the drain, put a pencil to his temple, connected to his brain, and he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain. I'll stop there. Brad's <laughs> trying to get to Hamilton. <laughs> I'm just saying that I, I, I feel as though on a daily basis, we all want to be Lin-Manuel Miranda. We and, do. And, and you did get to pretend to be him for a moment. That's, I congratulate you. There, you're, you're, thank you for giving me the opening. Jane, any final words? Any final words, Jane? Um, I just so love doing this, and I love meeting these wonderful people. And and sometimes you all talk, and I think I have no clue what they're talking about. But eventually, it does work. It it work. It you know, excuse me. It works its way into my brain, and I go, wait a minute. I actually understand them. That's kind of scary. But um, did you understand? Did you understand this? Yeah, I did. Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, I just am so grateful to Kevin for including me in these because I learned so much. And uh, and it's wonderful. I love seeing Sarah. You were very quiet today, Sarah. I know. I was thinking about that, too. But uh, uh, I respect the heck out of all of you. And I think uh, today uh, really is such a I'm usually like the, the funny part. And but this is such a serious topic. Um, that, you know, I think this one uh, just deserved the respect and deserved the uh, the experts to be able to get some information out that a lot of people I don't think are aware of all of these different implications. That's right. It was so intense. That's why I felt I had to be Lin-Manuel. <laughs> you look so much like him, too. Yeah, we're both brown skin. That's true. Yeah. I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And by the way, with all due respect, Brad, Brad, have you never seen Hamilton? I have. I've seen it okay. several times. Okay. Um, if I really had to see something Lin-Manuel's done again, I think I would probably watch Encanto for the oh, like 80,000th time. Fan fantastic. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Uh, so is Moana. Oh, yes. Well, Encanto's better. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, too. Yeah. Um, Real pleasure. Lovely meeting you. And, uh, and we're here in Nashville. The bottom three of you are here. And us and yeah. Kevin's up in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. 
Someday Jane right. has to tell us when she's going to be performing in the round with Jeannie or else why they have a new project so that we can come in like whoop, whoop, whoop and celebrate you. I would love, I'll let all of y'all know when I'm doing my next Bluebird thing and you can come. It'll okay. be yeah. Do seriously. If you can get me tickets, I will fly in. Oh, hey, Kevin, anytime I perform anywhere, you are more than welcome to fly in. Thanks. And sit with Gary. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, let's let Brad get out of here. Do you still have to call in on the on Monday in order to get your tickets to the Bluebird? Is that still the way that it works, yes. or is there an easier At way? Eight o'clock in the morning, you have to go online. It's actually the week before the performance, yeah. unless yeah. you know someone. Yeah, and then you know, know someone now. I said I get I get a seats, you know, for performing. So if you let me know ahead of time, you are more than welcome to join us. Okay, I want to thank Jane, Jeannie and our special guests, Dr. Ellen Clayton and Professor Bradley Nalen for a really outstanding episode. As always, I wanna thank ST for helping me to run this sucker. I am truly honored and humbled to call these people friends. They inspire me most of the time, and when they don't, they're scaring me as they did this episode. Thank you all. And again, thank you all for listening. Incidentally, for those of you interested in actually seeing some of this discussion and not just hearing about it, check out our Facebook site, or our new TikTok channel, Informatics in the Round, where we've put some of the tastiest bits for public consumption. Good stuff, I think. By the way, we've got some great topics queued up, so stay tuned. Till next time, stay well, get your booster, keep a positive outlook on life. Science, it'll cure what ails you. Take care.